This is War Room Moments, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and most relevant people on the planet, hear their stories, and get the most important business lessons they have learned on their road to success, and get exclusive advice on how to implement their success into your life and business. War Room Moments is brought to you by the Strategic Advisor Board. Here's your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the War Room today, Amy. It is fantastic to have you on the show today. Wealth of business experience, you know, multiple decades of business ownership. It's great to have you on to share some really good experience with our audience. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Awesome. Well, I always love to start off with, you know, if you could just quickly introduce yourself 30 seconds and, and you know, what, what are your superpowers? What, what are you good at? I don't like to introduce guests because you'll do a way better job than I will. (laughs) um, I'm Amy Anderson. I am the co-founder of a company called Wild Coffee Marketing. And we actually don't do coffee marketing. Wild Coffee is a plant that was growing outside of my window when I was writing my business plan in Miami. And I had to keep cutting it back and it was growing up over the glass. And I said, gosh, you know, what is this about this plant that makes it so resilient and growing so much? And I'm writing a business plan. I said, what a great metaphor for a company I'm trying to grow while I'm growing my clients' companies. So we actually named it Wild Coffee. It's not, you can't drink it. It's not Arabica. It's a native sort of weed, beautiful plant that uh, inspired me while I was writing that. Um, And I've spent 30, almost 30 years of my career in marketing, um, but I was a corporate marketer. I was not an entrepreneur. I'm an accidental entrepreneur. Um, I always listen to people talking about their side hustles from when they were young and things that they knew they wanted to do. And I was not that. Um, It wasn't until I had two young children and got divorced and knew that to return into the workforce, I would have a big job. I was 20 years in at that point. I was looking at CMO jobs in Miami that had global travel associated with them and said, the only way I'm going to be able to have a schedule and have a life that's flexible for a six and an eight-year-old at the time uh, is to start my own business. And that's where Wild Coffee was born. Oh, that's amazing. I love stories that start off of, you know, or businesses, right? Businesses that start because of necessity. That's you know, that's, it's awesome to have stories like that. And the funny part is, is that's a huge majority of businesses start off because of necessity or by complete accident. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, I always thought I was a good corporate person. You know, I navigated the system really well. I felt very comfortable. I was an an innovator in a corporate environment is what I realized later, that you don't necessarily have to be an entrepreneur to be incredibly innovative. You can do it within a corporate framework. Um, And I enjoyed that. I loved it. And so it was scary going out on my own. And I didn't, I just knew that I could do one thing that I was good at and try to sell that. And then I said, oh my gosh, I have to be in sales all the time too. And that was one of the biggest eye-opening aspects of owning my own company is if you're not selling all the time, then you don't have a business. Yeah. 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 So we're going to dive into that because that's a great point. But before we do that, I'm curious as to, did you come from a, did you grow up in a family where you're you had parents or uncles, grandpas, grandmas that were entrepreneurs at all? 
Absolutely not. My dad Mm. actually got his MBA at the University of Cincinnati while co-oping his way through. He was from a farm in South Central Illinois, got a scholarship to University of Cincinnati, actually walked on the basketball team with Oscar Robertson. when he was playing. My dad was a 5'11 scrappy guard. Um, But my dad went into the office of Merrill Lynch in New York after finishing his MBA and said, I'd like to be a stockbroker. You should hire me. And he worked for Merrill Lynch for 37 years until he retired. Wow. And I just don't think a lot of people do that anymore. You know, he, I don't know that he loved it. I think he loves the markets and he's still in the markets, you know, Mm -hmm. at 80 now, but he, you know, worked that system and was a corporate guy and my mother sold real estate. So there was, and my grandfather was the head of channel marketing at Procter and Gamble. So it there, we did not come from a place of, of saying, Hey, you know, you're good at that. Have you ever thought about translating it to something you're of your own? There was no asset building conversations. You know, mm-hmm. it was get good jobs. Don't negotiate too hard because they may rescind the offer. <laughs> so it was a very sort of conservative mindset in the company. So when I went and did this, I was actually fortunate because my parents were my angel investors for my first mm, year. Nice. So they said, oh, you are really going to do this. And I think they were investing in the boys and me. And they said, you know, we believe that you can do it. We'll give you 12 months of capital to survive and pay your rent and and do what you need to do for the business. And I was self-sustaining within 12 months of of starting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know what, It's, it's really interesting that I can't remember who I was talking to. It's a couple months ago. I was at an event a couple months ago. And, you know, one of the most fatal flaws of startups is they get enough capital for three years, right? But then they automatically put a shelf life on the company. Mm. And instead of being in that have to generate revenue mindset, right? They know their shelf life is three years. So they spend all the time doing all the wrong things, right? And they're not focused on generating capital. And that is one of the reasons why a huge majority of startups fail is because, you know, where you put like a 12 month cap on yourself, you have to move, you have to sell, you've got to move the needle and move it fast because 12 months is nothing in the life of business at all. Right. Well, well, even the, the language around burn rate is so violent. That you are, you're, you're sort of on a countdown rather, mm. rather than a growth mindset. And, yeah. you know, there are times, Jason, where I think, oh my gosh, I would love to just take my foot off the gas. And it's been five years. You know, I, I reunited with my former boss from the early 2000s, who was my business partner in this venture and a very powerful partnership that we have, but we've never taken our foot off the gas. And, and that's from a growth mindset and a revenue generating perspective. You know, we sign a new engagement and we're ready for the next one. And that's what we do for our clients too. If we're not driving top line revenue for our clients, then we should not exist as a company. Mm -hmm. So it's just that constant. I'll admit that sometimes it's tiring. Sometimes I'd love to take a quarter and coast, (laughs) but it's not, you know, I think we sent three scopes of work out last week. And then I came to work on Monday after the holiday and said, okay, let's go, you know, where, where are we going? And I've learned the hard way, 
right? That when you mention businesses failing, it's cash flow. It's cash flow mm-hmm. and managing Absolutely. that capital, managing that resource, and knowing that you always have to be selling, always. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And that's the whole foot on the gas mentality, right? I mean, I've got a total of 14 companies and I never let my foot off the gas. You know, I mean, I have people that run them, so on and so forth, but, but I'm all over them all the time, right? Because if you're not, it's easy for people to become complacent and and then all of a sudden you start watching the numbers and the numbers are going to dip and rise and dip and rise anyway. But, but, <clears throat> you know, with trying to get things through COVID and all that stuff, right. That was challenging for everybody. And I don't care. I don't care who you are. It was a challenge in some way, whether it was just a challenge of having to do this all the time. Right. Um, some people just couldn't handle not being around other people, like physically in the space with other people. And I'm interested in kind of exploring the journey that you went through when it comes to, because you said you're in corporate, the corporate space, right? And were you the kid that kind of, was there an influence for entrepreneurship when you were a kid, do you think? Or, you know, were you the the little girl on the corner with a, a lemonade stand or anything like that? Was there any influencers that think kicked you off to, to really want that later in life? Cause it wasn't until way later in life you'd made that decision. Yeah. You know what? I've always been driven mm-hmm. and whether it was running the mile in PE as a freshman and having <laughs> to win that to being head of my top of my class to going, having the most choices of colleges I wanted back in the late eighties, you know, um, I just have always been driven for, to succeed. And it wasn't, and then I think we all have different currencies for that in a corporate environment. I really liked having more responsibility. I wanted to manage more teams. I wanted to be higher up in an organization so I could influence what was happening. But ultimately I knew I said, gosh, I'm working so hard for someone else's asset. So that was sort of always in the back of my mind, especially as a marketer, an innovator, someone who's ideating, someone who's driving sales revenue. I I said, well, gosh, that, that was always sort of an itch I had. That wouldn't it be great if I were building my own asset, if I were driving my own sales, if these ideas were benefiting my team and me. And so that has been, I think, the most rewarding piece of this. And so that drive for success is now translated into driving the success of my company and my clients. Um, And I also had some really tough work experiences. I was in the 90s in New York City at some big brands before there were any rules, (laughs) you know, it was still, there was a lot of drinking at lunch in this glamorous sort of environment. I was in, there were not sort of behavioral, uh, rules. I, um, I, yes. And so I had some experiences that were really challenging as a young female executive position in some cases at some of these startups. And so I really wanted to create the best, safest, most fun place for people to work. And I think that's the other rewarding aspect. It's not just creating an asset. It's creating an environment where people can learn, people can earn and grow and thrive and become amazing marketers and really hone their skill sets. And they can work anywhere they want, right? Especially in this environment, but that they don't want to. 
yeah. because of what you've created. Yeah. And I will tell you, you know, there's this huge flood of, you know, marketing experts and stuff like popped up marketing and coaching and all that stuff. Right. So Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, it's like everybody decided to become a coach or a marketer, one of the two. Right. (laughs) So, so, I mean, fortunately for brands like you, you've got a, you know, very long lineage of, of past performance and all that, but that there had to be some kind of effect from all of that. I imagine for you guys when, you know, kind of going through that experience, I, one of my companies is an, an agency, but we don't do like, it, it's more like present type of, of advertising for larger corporations. Um, so it's more like announcements versus advertisements, I guess. Right. Right. So we didn't have to really deal with that kind of stuff, but, but in a performance driven world today, right. When it comes to, you know, having to, you know, make sure you get the mustard on the, on the sandwich, you know, there, I, I imagine you've still went through a lot of challenges with a lot of that with, with marketing and so on and so forth. How has that really driven you know, the marketing conversation, do you think for a lot of business owners? Because it seems like to me that it's one of the first things that every business that begins to struggle, it's the first thing they want to cut away. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Especially when it's a big line item, right? So what's interesting about what we do, I I do find the performance space can be commoditized. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of people can take lots of courses as you talk about, you know, with coaches and marketers coming to the forefront during that time, especially what's missing and what people can't replicate as easily is the strategy layer. And that is what we bring to the table. And I see a lot of business owners, even larger corporations, you'd be surprised, Jason, at how thin their in-house marketing structure is, how they are executing based on no data and no strategy. So we kick off all of our engagements with a strategy piece. There's no way because, I mean, you get two degrees off course in a sailboat and you end up in England versus South Africa, right? If you go long enough. And so if you don't have a roadmap and a strategy plan, and it's really part of my my mission is to transform the in-house marketing model because I don't think it works anymore. I think you have to cover too many skill sets with too many people and you're lacking the strategy layer. So what happens is you'll have maybe one person in-house, they'll hire a series of agencies or freelancers, and there's no roadmap and there's no strategy that's driving a cohesive sort of brand strategy and growth and performance plan. And and I believe that, you know, companies from 5 million to 100 million in revenue, everyone needs a CMO. You just don't need one full-time or in-house. It's not affordable and it doesn't make sense, but why not outsource that piece of your business that you have the strategy layer? And, and we say that, you know, part of our mission also is to make executives feel safe, you know, that they're not mm-hmm. spending these dollars, not really in this black box, not really understanding, you know, is it driving my business? How am I holding everyone accountable? We bring that strategy layer to the table so that people aren't just doing right in a sort of a panic mode or an informationless environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's coming from a very deeply rooted strategy based on 30 years of my business partner and my experience. Yeah. I tell you, that's huge because anybody can go to Facebook and throw some ads up, right? You're right. And and hammer, you know, 20 bucks a day at it and hammer at it and hammer at it and hammer at it. And then the next thing you know, by the end of the year, you've dropped a couple hundred thousand dollars in Facebook 
and you've got a big old whopping Zatowski to show for it, right? Right. right. <laughs> well, you know, and the costs are really, you know, just like inflation. I mean, we're looking at campaigns year over year, same targeting, same audience. They're three times as expensive. Mm-hmm. So how do you change that? You know, so there are a lot of sort of micro aspects of that, but it has to tie into a larger strategy to say, you know, we're going to pull back here, focus on another sales cycle. It ties in this way with the brand. We're actually going to go to a franchise strategy from a corporate owned strategy. So there we sit in the C-suite because marketers own the digital experience. A lot of times we own the data. We own the systems mm-hmm. that market to the people using that data, right? So, so our role has really expanded into this place of a trusted advisor in the C-suite about who your customer is, how you're going to reach them, how you're going to find more of them, how you're going to reduce churn in some cases, how you're going to build and grow a brand. Um, so it's a very rich environment that we're working in from a marketing perspective. I think it's one of the most exciting times um, for yeah. us in our profession by far. Yeah, for well, I you know, you always hear people say that uh, you know, marketing's a black hole and all these things. Well, it doesn't have to be, right? No, it doesn't have to be a black hole. And I personally, I think a, a big mistake that a lot of startup founders, well, hell, even experienced companies make is they try to market to everyone. Well, right. when you try to market to all, you market to no one, right? So. So you really have to hammer all that down. And because, I mean, I'm cut from a marketing cloth too. I've really spent a lot of time. Um, It's not my, I wouldn't call it my superpower, but but I spent a a lot of time in that space for about five or six years for for a while because it was kind of coupled into the sales stuff, right? So always is, um, yes. Always is, right? (laughs) So, so. And, you know, you mentioned that at the beginning of, of the sales part. And, and I think that's really worth mentioning because it's, it's interesting. My neighbor, he's one of the former uh, CEOs of Oracle and every Monday night we get together and watch sports and have a cigar and a shot and a beer. Right. And one of the things he's always constant on is as a business owner, CEO, whatever title you want to give yourself, you have to be the driving force in sales for your company. And, and that coming from a corporate level CEO of somebody like Oracle, he was always on the ground floor at sales all the time. And I've always been that way. I've been in the sales process. I've always thought you have to always be in that process, no matter what. Um, And you mentioned it up front. I don't think that means you always have to be the one on the phone doing the sales, but you have to control it and be a part of it and pay attention to it. what's What's your thoughts on that? Well, because we're a 20 person firm, you know, my business partner and I drive it completely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you have to understand how they're selling you to whom they're Mm -hmm. selling. You know, what are the ideal clients, ideal customers? I mean, it's a huge sort of drive. It's going to be the makeup of not only your revenue, but your customer base. You know, so I think that, you know, when we talk about 
how we start engagements with a strategy layer, positioning is a huge part of that. We use April Dunford's obviously awesome. It's a West Coast sort of SaaS high tech approach to positioning, but it really digs into who, if you didn't exist, who would people use or go to mm-hmm. or buy from instead of you? What unique attributes do you offer that they don't? What are the values of those attributes and who cares about it? What is your customer set? And then what market do you win? And so I think really sort of looking at that first and then the sales layer to understand that you're actually reaching those people, highlighting those attributes, holding them accountable, and then looking at revenue. Pipeline robustness is something that's very important to us and it's important Mm -hmm. to our clients, right? Who are you talking to? How many people, when, what is your close rate? Um, I know that if we get in the room nine times out of 10, we have a new client. It's just finding a good fit and scaling that. So I do agree that CEOs must be uh, an intimate part of that process. You know, yeah. it's so critical to the to success of your company, especially when you and I talk about cash flow, right? I mean, without the sales, there's no cash flow in many <laughs> ways when you're bootstrapping a company. So yeah, cash flow is king. Got to yes. have it. Yes. <laughs> well, and that's it. one of the things, that's one of the things, Justin, that 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 I learned very early is I wish I would have brought in fractional CFO services much mm. sooner than I did. Bookkeepers look back, they close your books, they balance your books, they they sort of get everything, and then and you and you have a historical sort of record of what happened the prior month, prior quarter, prior year. A CFO is helping you forecast into the future. Yeah. And so we're actually walking our own talk. We're fractional CMOs and we hired a fractional CFO. I don't need him on board 24-7 with a 20-person firm, but I do need to be accountable to someone. He's the one who comes to us and said, okay, what's the pipeline look like? This is our forecast for the next quarter, next six months. So mm-hmm. I think really, really having your financial model in order in a very sophisticated way of understanding your labor, revenue costs, your COGS, all of that. Mm-hmm. Are those going up, down trends? You know, what do you have to look at? I know exactly for the next six months what it's going to cost to run my business. I know exactly what my payroll looks like. I so I have all of these together and then labor to revenue ratios, all of that for a small company. We take a pretty sophisticated view at it because that's the only way you can scale. There should be no mysteries, right? In that yeah, aspect of your business. Right. At it's all. like I, it's like I always say, every penny's a soldier, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Every penny has its its own little little assignment to go do yes. what it's supposed to do, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, and when you're a business owner, you have people counting on you. Yeah. I mean, I think of 20 families every mm-hmm. you know two weeks who are counting on that cash flow being there. Um, and with our clients too, you know, helping them when you outsource marketing, typically you're going to save 30% just on overhead alone. And then you have consolidation in there. So we help build cost structures, budgets for our clients that help them project sales growth, create consistency in that and produce consistent results. So, um, you know, we all like to think that it's so sort of free flowing in this entrepreneurial world. And it's actually, I think the success comes from being highly structured and Mm -hmm. analytical on that point and then go do Go be in yeah. your z- zone of genius. But you know what people don't realize is that you're actually in HR and accounting before you're actually in what you love to do first. Yeah, 
That's a good point. <laughs> that was a hard lesson for me to learn. I'm like, what? I can't just do beautiful marketing all the time and tell companies what things should look like and and what the brand positions, all the things that I love. No, actually, I'm in finance and HR first. So yeah, well, it's yes. complex, right? It's like yes. uh, it's like anything in life. There's some complexity to it. And for the audience, if you didn't get something out of all that, while well, you were just asleep at the wheel, but <laughs> for you hardheads right out there that didn't maybe quite pick some of those things up because there was a whole bunch of them there, uh, little nuggets of gold that were given, but for, for the hardheads, what do you think are just a couple of mainstay things for you? that you would love to reach out and tell a young founder or even an old dog, right? You know, maybe if you just did these few things. Mm. Well, definitely having your financial model in order Mm -hmm. and having forecasting from the beginning, every two weeks, every month, having an outs, you know, there are a lot of really wonderful outsourced CFO resources that you can use to project into the future to see where Mm -hmm. you're going and not just from a burn rate perspective, right? So it's almost like you forget that that capital is there, use it when essential, but really focus on building, Um, which leads me into, if you're not always selling, you don't have a company. So we're all in sales all the time. Even as a marketer, I'm selling ideas to clients, right? I'm, um, we work with one of the country's largest boat manufacturers under 30 feet. Um, and they're building a lifestyle brand that we've been building with them for the last two years. And I'm meeting with the CFO to talk about, again, what, how Yeti did it, right? Mm-hmm. How Yeti went and, and sort of outpriced the market, outsold, and stayed true to who they are. Right. Yeah. So that that sales piece, I'm selling ideas. We're selling consulting engagements. Um, and we're selling ourselves. So it's not just a revenue driver, it's just everything we do is in sales, but just make sure you focus on the revenue piece of that um wholeheartedly. And as you had mentioned, really as a senior leader to stay involved in that process, you know, from pipeline growth to how they're selling, what they're selling, what the splits are, what the revenue is, you know what their commission structure looks like, you know? Mm, Yeah, no, it's a, it's a total package, right? You can't just do, well, we're just going to work on it's an acquisition all the way through the pipeline, all the way to the end of fulfillment. You have to be completely engaged in that whole process because if there's one piece of that, that's not working, you can be working your tail off up on the front end and it's never going to get there. (laughs) Right, right. right. Well, you mentioned process. And I think that's interesting too, that we have always run our small company like a big one. Mm -hmm. And that those are when we begin a consulting engagement, we're marketers, but I'm not just saying here, you need to do this Google AdWords and this, and these branding activities. No, we're going in and saying, okay, how are you acquiring customers? Where is that data? What is the process for accessing that data? Um, how does your sales team work with the data? You know, mm-hmm. and so process is very important because it allows scalability, and that without process, there's chaos. So we actually use EOS system. I'm not sure if you're familiar with yeah. that entrepreneur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so we use Gina Wickman and Traction, and and it's worked for us. You know, when it doesn't work is when a management team gets too big and you have too many frac like EOS groups and pods mm-hmm. sort of working, but a system, find a system that allows you to plan, you know, quarterly, yearly, three year, five year, and have a meeting cadence with accountability. 
right? So out of our meetings, we have goals, we have to-dos, and we really dig into issues. So does your company have a forum and a place where people can go and really ideate and say, I have an idea to make this better. I have an issue if something's not working. You know, I have something to share with everyone that's going to impact the group. And so we really, every two weeks, my senior team, we dig into issues and we solve them. Um, and it's a really important process, I think. And I, I think you have to have an operating system to run a company in order to scale it. Yeah. First. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, great book, by the way, Rocket Fuel. Um, yes, absolutely. It's a w- wonderful book. And I think that uh, everybody kind of needs to know who they are too, right? Yes. You know, are you that visionary type or or not. I mean, right. Or are you the integrator? Or are you the and integrator? I think you can shift. You know, my partner and I, he he was very much the visionary when we started this company. Mm-hmm. He had already owned a marketing consulting firm and he sold it. Mm. He helped launch Orange Theory from one to 300 locations. Nice. I had not done that work, right? I had been in a co- corporate environment. And then as we grew, he said, you know, I really love the operational piece of this. And so he sort of drifted more into an integrator role. And then I had visions for transforming in-house marketing team models. I had visions for our intellectual property and our approach to how we work with clients, sort of how do we embrace a digital first environment? Um, So we sort of shifted. And I think Mm -hmm. that's okay too. If you find yourself drifting into another sort of leadership and way of running the business, just make sure you have the other piece to it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I got to tell you, I love the story. I love the plant out the window and how that <laughs> that inspired the name. I mean, those are, I mean, religious or not, keep that out of it. But it's like, there are signs in life sometimes that just lead us in the right direction. And yes. you just started there, which I think is like really, really, really valuable and really cool. And it invested you in your brand, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I mean, how do you want people to reach out to you to work with you? Ah, well, luckily we have a name that has some stopping power and people typically remember (laughs) Wild Coffee, but we're at wildcoffeemarketing.com and also on LinkedIn at Wild Coffee Marketing. And my team is publishing some really interesting information on digital trends, strategy, why people need an outsourced CMO, even for a short-term engagement to have Mm. an audit and your strategy and sort of your current marketing program looked at. Um, So anywhere under Wild Coffee on LinkedIn or um, on the web, they can find us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, kind of closing things out here. It's it's the magical million-dollar question for all the money in the world. And that is you know, if you could have invited anybody here today, dead or alive, any point in time um, to either be here to just listen in or maybe even to participate, who would have you loved to have here today and why them? Oh, Dean Smith, former head coach of the UNC Chapel Hill uh, basketball team. I am an alumnus. And uh, from the time that I was young, when they beat with Michael Jordan, they beat Georgetown in 1982. I've been a fan 
Um, and what I found really, really interesting about Coach Smith was his ability to inspire and lead teams. So I would love to talk to him uh, with us and you about, about inspiring teams, inspiring individual contribution, having a vision for a program, a company, a team. And he was just a really warm wonderful guy and fixture at Chapel Hill that I would love an opportunity to spend time with and have a conversation with. That's awesome. Zero hesitation in that, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) My blood runs Carolina blue. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) I was actually, I I retired from Fort Bragg, um, right, right there close to there. So we used to go. Absolutely. In Fayetteville, right? Yeah, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Good old Vietnam. Yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, and North Carolina is an interesting state. I don't think people realize it takes nine hours to drive from the mountains to the beach. Yeah. And then you have this incredible coastline and then these wonderful mountains and then these very mm-hmm. rich sort of farming and university and military environment in between. It's yeah. just a really special place, I believe. It is. It's beautiful country. I mean, we it lived, is. we lived in a, uh, small little golf course community and you you drove in there and you know around most military installations it isn't always the prettiest around those Um, but but it was like driving into serenity right and Mm -hmm. you know there was lots of communities like that and it's like they were purposely built that way so you could you know kind of get away from the military life of things but gosh we used to go we used to go out, we used to, I, I spent lots of time in Raleigh, <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of time there for sure. Um, anyway, um, well, gosh, thanks for coming on the show and it, it's been great having you on. There was so much value from what you shared with the audience today. Um, and I truly mean that not just cause it's a podcast, um, a lot of value is driven from that. And and that's why I love a lot of the guests that we have on this show, because we actually do vet people and say no. <laughs> so. Believe it or not. No, thank you. And, it, it and I not. love, you know, it's, it's um, my journey is not one that, that started with a lot of intention, but when you're yeah. in it, you're in it. And I love to just share and maybe help. And, and I wasn't listening to podcasts when I started my own company. Somehow mm-hmm. I, we got it from two to 20 people inside of five years and continue to grow it. And, and so I must be doing a few things right here and there. So I'm really happy to sort mm-hmm. of share my mistakes and hope to help, you know, people prevent, prevent them from having to make them. And I really appreciate you having me on today. Yeah. 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 Well, we all have the same 168 hours a week. Thanks for stopping by and spending 40 here with me and uh, our audience. Uh, We'll have about 10,000 people listen to this episode. So hopefully some of them need what you have Uh, for sure. There's probably many of them that do, and hopefully they come check you out at wildcoffeemarketing.com, right? Is that it? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. All right. Thanks for being here. Cheers. Thanks for listening to War Room Moments with your host, Jason Miller. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advisement on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates, and we'll see you on the next episode.